0: guys can start. Hello.
1: um hello everyone I'd like to welcome you to um, our dot LA strategy session on coronavirus um, we're gathered here today to talk about uh, this fast-moving virus that is spreading now through dozens of countries around the world um, changing the face of business for uh, many uh, and so you know uh, we really appreciate you joining us a few ground rules to start please keep your phones on on mute Uh, they're automatically muted right now we're going to be able to have you ask questions via um, you can type you can type those into us and then we will um, be able to uh, I'll be able to see those questions that you are asking and then I'll select some toward the end we'll we'll set aside about 20 minutes um, for everyone to get their questions uh, answered by these folks who have joined us and um, so without further ado, uh, you know, I'd like to introduce the the speakers uh, who have uh, graciously agreed to join us today. Nick Vias is Executive Director of the Center for Global Supply Manage- Chain Management at the Marshall School of Business at USC. He's a subject matter expert on end-to-end global supply chain management and he's led cultural and business transformations for Fortune 100 companies globally. He implemented breakthrough process improvements over 500 projects that have transformed businesses for clients in the field of healthcare, service, government, retail, and end-to-end supply chain focusing on procurement, sourcing, IT, distribution, logistics, and transportation. Dr. Vyas created and co-founded the initiative for USC's Global Supply Chain Management Program. He's an assistant professor Um, educating the next generation of business leaders. And he's been recognized as a supply chain leader and awarded by USC Marshall with the Golden Apple Award for Teaching Excellence. Jessie Draper is the founding partner at Halogen Ventures. She's a fourth generation venture capitalist focused on early stage investing in female founded consumer technology. Among her 50 portfolio companies are the Skim, Carbon 38, Hop Skip Drive, the Flex Company, Eloquy, which we recently sold to Walmart, and Elle, which recently sold to P&G, and Sugarfina. She stars on Meet the Drapers, the crowdfunding reality show by Sony Entertainment Television that's now in its second season. She was listed by Marie Claire magazine as one of the 50 most connected women in America. Draper has been a contributor to Marie Claire, Mashable, Forbes, and is a regular investor and tech personality on major news network shows. Finally, Stuart Easterby is an operating partner at Greycroft, a seed-to-growth venture capital firm where he works directly with entrepreneurs to help build transformative companies. Stuart is a career operator who has worked as a revenue and operations executive for three fast-growing publicly-traded technology companies, each with billion-dollar-plus market caps. Um, And last but not least, uh, my name is Tammy Abdullah. I'm the senior reporter here at and I'm excited to host our first um, panel on uh, coronavirus, uh, the first of hopefully many, and I'll be your moderator today. So with that, um, we'll begin. So I think the first question uh, many people who are joining us are wondering about is how has daily reality changed uh, for everyone uh, on this call? And um, let me start with you, Nick. How has your day to day changed? And then we'll dive into details about the work you're doing.
2: So, th- thank you, Tammy, and good morning, everyone. Uh, so, I think if we just look at it, I have a three distinct roles that I play. So, as an executive director at the center, uh, the entire staffing, our colleagues working over there, researchers, students, uh, they all have gone remote. So, we have completely become virtual, 100% virtual at the center. As my second role that I play as an academic director, bringing in students, about 90 students, into our Global Supply Chain Management master's program, uh, we're seeing the new level of challenges. How do we actually inaugurate this upcoming cohort? What will the student be facing in terms of their financial documents, their scores, their application? And that uncertainty has certainly prompted us to start to think about the contingencies of upcoming calendar year for the students. And last but not the least as a faculty, as you know USC, we have now become virtual through the end of semester. So all the on-campus full-time classes that we were we were hosting on campus are now transitioned over to virtual. And that comes with a tremendous amount of challenges, monitoring the project work, collaborative work, testing, and this is certainly uh, unchartered territory uh, for the higher education as well. So, in, from that perspective, in each each of these three distinct area that I I, I manage, I have seen an incredible changes because of the COVID nineteen.
1: Uh, thank you so much, Nick. Um, and w- what about you, Jesse? Uh, how has your day to day transformed as re- as as re- as related to this uh you know novel virus uh looks like we might be having a bit of technical difficulties uh so uh while uh we make wait to see if uh, Jesse um is able to be uh Heard, we're going to uh, switch over to Stuart. Stuart, um, how are things at Greycroft? Um, how are they being impacted? How, what are you seeing on your day to day?
0: Yeah, thanks and good morning, everyone. And um, I hope everyone's wearing green today because it is St. Patrick's Day. So, um, what we're seeing is that we're active investors um, throughout the nation. We have a lot of portfolio companies within Los Angeles. So, I, on a day to day basis, uh, work with entrepreneurs and what we're seeing is uh, you know companies are clearly focusing on the safety of their employees um, and we're also seeing companies they're implementing various policies around COVID-19 Well we saw a few weeks ago companies had implemented the no business travel and then really starting as soon as the late last week it seemed like there's a tipping point where most companies did move to a work-from-home policy so we're, we're actively seeing that um, And then what we're also seeing companies, um, they are now actively engaging in contingency planning as the reality is set in that we might be facing a a, a significant downturn. Companies are really looking what belt tightening measures they can take. And I call it both the plan B and the plan C. So we're seeing companies embracing both. Um, And and finally, the last thing we're seeing is companies, now that they are doing work from home, they're figuring out how they actually do work from home um how do you make all the video conferencing work and the teleconferencing and, and whatnot so i'm actively engaging with companies on particularly on contingency planning and how to actually do work from home but that's what we're seeing right now
1: so oh, um thank you so much, Stuart. Really appreciate you sharing that. Yes, everyone. I hope you're all wearing green. We can't see you, but, um, trust me once this is all over, you'll get, we'll get our pinches in. Um, I think we're still having some technical difficulties, um, with Jesse, but Jesse, when, um, when you do pop on the line, uh, feel free to give a shout. Um, and, uh, we'll, uh, we'll come back to you on that question. Um, apologies to everyone. Um, she has, uh, Certainly, a lot of contributions to give to this conversation, um, and I know that as soon as she's able to uh, be heard, we will we will um, come back to her on this question. So um, let me let me go back. Uh, let me drill down a bit on some of the things that you brought up, Stuart. Um, you know, you're talking about companies looking at their uh, contingency planning and Plan B. Um, here or or Plan C at this point. Um, w- what are those looking like? Uh, what what sort what, when you talk about contingency planning, like how are you helping them with this? What would you tell someone with a company to to look at right now?
0: Yeah, and in my experience, in uh, I've been in uh, again a co operator uh, in both 2000 and 2008 as startups, LA startups, and, and luckily we survived and thrived uh, coming out of those incidents, but. But the general approach we, we tell companies is you should really be thinking about your cash runway. You know, Can your business withstand a significant down for, for an extended period? The second is on fundraising. If fundraising on attractive terms is difficult for the next few quarters, how will your business adapt? And the third is on debt. If, if companies have available debt facilities, can they and should they draw them down? So we start with a framework. Think about your cash. Think about your fundraising. Think about your debt. What we also encourage companies is to to go into it thinking that the the demand might not come as what they had hoped for. And again, this is based upon our experience having been through multiple downturns, What we've seen often in situations like this, in periods of great uncertainty, companies pull back their spending and consumers pull back their spending. And then obviously what that means is that companies' revenues from businesses or consumers tend to dry up or not come in as expected. So in other words, the demand dries up. And to the extent that a company's expenses are are not moving in tandem with revenue, then companies can get into a burn situation and uh, you know eat into their capital. So we encourage companies again to have a framework thinking about cash, fundraising and debt, and really assume that the demand might not come in and to take the proactive actions to think about their expense structure, do the belt tightening so they're not in a vulnerable position on their overall capital.
1: Um so uh thank you so much, Stuart. I really appreciate that. Um let's let's switch uh let's let's switch over to, to Nick for a moment. Nick, um obviously your uh, your everyday is the world of supply chain and um you know, a lot of people are very concerned, given our, our global economy, um, uh, about supply chain disruption. What are you seeing in terms of this? Uh, wh- what are things looking like out there, um, and how is this impacting inventory?
2: So, I think uh, what we're seeing with the COVID-19 is an unprecedented disruption. Uh, so, th- there are the two different dimensions, so we have to look at it. So, the, the COVID-19 obviously has a different a maturation point, and we're seeing that each country, each region is going through the inflection point at a different rate. So this poses really, from when we look at the end-to-end supply chain, because we are so interconnected in terms of a supply chain network, this is posing a tremendous trouble because the interdependency of this supply chain network, it's not like all of the countries across the globe, we're all going through the, this virus and getting it out of our system at the same time. So what we see in China, which took them about nine to ten weeks to get out of their system and stabilize it, the rest of their dependency of the supply chain network, we're now starting to go through. So Italy, for example, is about three weeks ahead of us. We're about three weeks lagging or two weeks lagging behind Italy. So you cannot imagine that this disruption will continue to go in a different phase throughout the globe, but will continue to impact. The end to end supply chain. So, if you are a manufacturer, you might be able to bring back your capacity up. However, your dependency on the resources, the raw material, and transportation in the front, uh, the first mile, may be disrupted. So, this is likely to cause a long drawn disruption within the supply chain uh, for a while.
1: Was this impacted by the the Europe ban that went ahead and, and, um, you know, initial cargo
2: concerns? So I I think uh, so that brings a great question because this was such an uncoordinated reactory uh, management that we have seen across the world, world, right? So rather than saying, hey, listen, we've seen this initial outburst in Wuhan, China, it's likely to actually spread out because we know we have a six and a half million people that flag uh, uh, across the world. We have over 40 million people, they go in and out. This was close to the Lunar New Year. So you knew that this will have a massive impact outside of this one China, but we waited. So I think what we're now seeing every country, every region is creating their own isolation strategy. And it is good that we're doing it, but understand this, it's not coordinated, and therefore, it therefore, will have a long period of time.
1: Um, so, uh, for uh, sorry, there was a there was a quick echo. There was a little bit of an echo there. Is anyone's using a? Computer? Please use your headphones. Um, all right. So, um, Nick, uh, just one one more question on that point. Well, to what degree are those Chinese factories online and coming online, and what's the timeline for that?
2: So, so there's a different data point suggests. Some some data point says there's about 40 to 60% range that the uh, factories are coming back online. Uh, and in, in my estimates of various data points, and I'm, I'm taking it sort of an average pulse check, I would say it's about 50% of the fact factories in China is really coming back online. But again, they may have inventory on hand or initial raw material for them to restart, but to continue the production and and depending on additional raw materials and the parts and inventory for them to sustain that, it is still not in place and it's yet to be seen what impact that will cause in terms of a short-term disruption.
1: So um, I want to open up this question to, um, to everyone. Um, and, and Nick, we can start with you. But um, wh- what is the impact of this um, supply chain disruption on small to mid-sized companies? Um, and then uh, also uh, by the same degree, what is it on the consumer side of this?
2: So what I believe, I think this is a once in a century Sort of a phenomenon that we will deal with where the disruptions we're seeing is end to end and it's global. So, that being said, let's talk about the uh, consumer side, right? And then I'll touch the small to mid sized company. On the consumer side, what has happened that we have artificially a fear based demand has kicked in. So, all your key SKUs and product categories, uh, the essentials that we need, everyone has actually stocked up. So what it did, it actually created a run on uh, a supply that we had as a safety stock. So for many product lines, tissue paper being an example, or some key commodities that we all depend on on a day-to-day basis have been drawn more than what we really needed, right? So we have exhausted the safety stock. We don't have work in process, the whip inventory in the pipeline, and the manufacturing capacity is not yet. So what is likely to happen in a short term and even near term that we'll have an out-of-stock situation, especially the items that we are dependent on the global network and not the local. So so that being said, my biggest fear of this is that the large companies have contingency plan, what Stuart talked about it. Uh, The contingency plans are well-executed, they're well-resourced, if not, they'll suddenly get the federal... Uh, help to sort of come out of this sort of gracefully, it's a small to mid-sized company that I worry the most. A, they don't have enough resources, nor the capital uh, financial resources and the labor pool to really sustain the blow that this can pose. And in the short term, my biggest fear is that these are the companies. They're not properly leveraged. They're not properly resourced. There's a likelihood that we'll see Presumably the layoffs, because that's the first thing that company will start to do, is cut the labor pool first, and then start to sort of wind down their operation. And if that happens, when we do get back on, it will take us a lot longer to bring back our small to mid-sized companies back online. That's a 70% of our GDP is small to mid-sized companies.
1: What about you, Stuart? What are your thoughts on this? You know, uh, what's what's the impact here? Um, to small and mid-sized companies um, versus large-sized companies, and what about on the consumer side of things? What are, what are you sort of seeing from your perch?
0: Yeah, I would, I would share Nick's comments. Um, because we've studied this, is you know, it's interesting after 9/11, a lot of companies, small business in New York, um, you know, they, they made the cost-cutting measures, but just it took a while for the revenue to come back. Um, but in between that period, they could not stay capitalized. Um, so, again, their access to capital, they just had trouble with it. And that, that's, that's how a lot of companies were vulnerable during that period. So, you know, that, that could potentially play out here. And, and, they, and that's why we just encourage companies to really look at their capital position um, and, and think about their runway and think about their expense structure in an environment like this. Uh, it pays to be proactive and again to think about the plan b and the plan c And we don't say this with any fear i mean some companies have different capital levels and different access to capital and, and different you know expense structures this is just a generic statement but we do encourage companies to really think through this because we don't know how long this will last and just be really prudent and again we, we tell companies this Identify the various signals or triggers that, if those events happen, then that is when you actually implement your contingency plan. We're not saying necessarily go make the cuts now, but if you are already seeing a degradation in your business, and just agree among yourselves, among other management team, like if these signals happen, if if revenue dries up to this level, then we will make the cuts. That's what we generally recommend.
1: Um, do you do you, do you see um, is, I'll, so I'll ask you Stuart first, then I'll go go to Nick. Um, but um, you know there's been some discussion about the very globalized nature of of business today. Um, do you think that that this uh, sort of the long-term impact of the spread of the coronavirus leads to deglobalization?
0: Yeah, that might be a little bit above my pay grade, but you know, we, we, are, uh, we, we certainly echo Nick's comments. We, we are seeing companies that have supply chains in China that, yeah, they've had, they've had difficulty getting supply. A lot of that started just, they, they, had, they were ready for the Lunar New Year, like all companies are, but then a lot of workers in China still stayed home even after that and then a lot of companies weren't able to get their replenishment supply. So so companies that have supply chains in China are still working through those issues. I don't know how demand will play out. I, I just tend to think that households and businesses in periods of great uncertainty tend to get skittish and everyone pinches their pennies. And I think that's uh, what drives up demand until it feels safe again and then people come out. But There also is a lot of opportunity here. I just, what we also advise companies is, look, the rebound could happen and it could happen very, very quickly. So you wanna be thoughtful about your ability to take advantage of the rebound. In many companies in situations like this, this is where they actually clean up, particularly if they have a superior offering, because when the rebound comes back, they can go in there and gain market share, so this gets into again the contingency planning of about you know you still want to be prepared uh you know don't cut too close to the bone, so to speak, so when the rebound happens that you are ready again, obviously no one knows when the rebound will happen, of course,
1: mhm, um well uh, and i want to come back to that question about the rebound um but but i want to open that that question as well uh to nick on deglobalization do you have any thoughts on that do you think people turn away from uh sort of a a global supply chain and try and do things more at home
2: so so i i think my perspective on this is that uh about 3 years ago we started this trade war Sort of a trade dispute and negotiations to really sort of a decouple the supply chain from a China-centric to sort of either Indo-Pacific or outside of China. So we we sort of played that uh, through the policy of trade negotiation. I believe that this COVID-19 may be the last straw that broke the camel's back. In terms of companies now thinking and realizing that there is certainly a, a governance and Policy pressure that we felt for the last three years, which will even likely to carry on post uh, our elections, uh, and, and then now w- the question will be asked to the C suites of the small to mid-sized to the large company: Is can you always put all your eggs in one basket? And how do you really then optimize your network? Simply outside this, the cost optimization to service and resiliency. And if you take those factors into consideration, I do feel the decoupling of the supply chain is likely to happen over the next five years now than it did before the COVID-19. That being said, I want to be very careful when you say decoupling of supply chain is different than de-globalization. Mm -hmm. I'm of the the firm believer that we are, the globalization is here to stay. Mm. We Especially in the U.S., cannot be isolated in our world without tapping into the emerging markets that of India, China, and rest of the world. We need that as an export. We need access to that market for our product and goods, and it is equally lucrative for our businesses to be able to tap into that market as their businesses to tap into our market. So the globalization is here to stay. I think decoupling. Of supply chains, regionalizing the supply chain, onshoring or near shoring of supply chain is the future strategy that I would venture to say that if I were to bet my dollar on it, that we will see the smarter companies will try to bring their network nodes close to the home for things that they have local demand for, that close to the consumer, their customers, and likewise build out the infrastructure close to their customers in a growth market that they want to participate
1: so when do you think and you know uh stuart um uh, alluded to this when, when do you think this um rebounder or, or, or recovery might um might begin and you know how long do you think it'll take i'll, I'll ask you uh nick that question first um you know and, and then we'll go to stuart
2: and listen i don't want to sound pessimistic on these things but i'm all about the data so if you look at the inflection point in china then look at south korea italy if you look at those inflection point if you just overlay those curves uh, the distribution curves over to us uh, and rest of the world right uh, i think we're about 2 to 3 weeks out and let's suppose that we get this virus in 3 weeks out of our system and you stabilize right and that it puts you about 4 weeks out to restart the network of a supply chain with this level of disruption, where you're talking about a shutdown of this magnitude across the country, and then restarting the supply chain, I think that's a six-week cycle at minimum. So that puts you about two and a half months out to begin with. So if that happens today, imagine two months from now is when we will be really in shape to start to participate in a rebound. To Stuart Point, I do think the rebound will be the ho- hockey shape. So it will be the hockey stick that will come out and it will be a gangbuster growth, which we will not be able to participate, especially the companies, if they really cut down to the bones to be able to rebuild a labor pool, restart the processes, and then get that entire learning curve diffused to be able to participate in this. So this is sort of a territory that we have not really gone in as an entire global community together. Yeah, so, and
0: I, um, I, I would agree with Nick's comments. Um, yeah, again, what, what we hear from companies, I think the general sentiment is we're all guessing here, obviously, is that the, the next four to six weeks, at least through April, I think we're all going to be hunkering down and we will see where we are at that. And then hopefully things recover. And I think the recovery is just going to vary completely by sector. You know, m- maybe the airlines and the hotels come back if you feel it's safe to travel again. Um, companies with supply chains might be a little slower to come back, but, but there's plenty, plenty of companies that don't have supply chains or the supply chains are here in the U S. So I, I think it'll be varied by sector, how the rebound happens. And again, this is just, again, I know it keeps saying it. We tell companies just be ready for the rebound when it comes.
1: So, I mean, Stuart, um, you know, uh, you're obviously, you do, you're dealing with a lot of different companies. How many, I mean. How many um, companies are you speaking with on the daily? Um, what, what sort of questions are you hearing from them? Um, what are they worried about? Um, and how are, you, uh, how are you hearing them? I, I know there's a few questions in one, but how are you hearing them uh, try and tackle this in terms of their teams and in terms of morale?
0: Well, I think for some entrepreneurs, this is the first sort of downturn they've ever had to navigate. So the questions we get are like, how do you actually do this? And you know, what are some specific belt tightening measures that you can implement? I think most people know that, but how, how do you implement them in, in a way that still preserves morale and again gives you the optionality if the rebound happens that you are ready? So it's more more the art of that. Um and you know we, we certainly advise companies on that specifically. Um, I would say just in general, um, you know companies worry they, they worry about access to capital in situations like this, and will they be able to draw down deadlines, and will they be able to go fundraise in an environment like that uh, that we're in? so those those that's, those tend to be more of those questions, but really a lot of it right now is just about capital levels and capital preservation, and just keeping the company, you know, functional. Um, And then again, so when the rebound happens, you are ready to capitalize on it.
1: Do you have any specific company stories that you're hearing um, in terms of how they are dealing with this or reacting to this, Stuart? And um, I know I'm putting you a bit on the spot here, but, you know, I think a lot of our listeners are curious.
0: Yeah, I mean, there, it, it ranges. There, look, there are some companies in our portfolio that, that in this environment, if they're doing food delivery and, and 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 other things, they're doing actually well, right? There are other companies that are more directly impacted by this. So um, the, the one, but in general, again, we just, we keep on hammering, know your cash position, which all startups always do, but really just be prepared to, to make the, the changes you need to in order to preserve your capital, and depending upon how particular companies are impacted, some some have made uh, deeper cuts, and it's not just the the normal, you know, get rid of the gourmet coffee and things like that. It's it's the deeper cuts around hiring freezes and executives taking pay cuts and 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 whatnot. So that's more along the plan C, but it really again completely varies by company about what they're doing right now.
1: Are there sectors or, or types of companies that are doing better now um, and others that are doing worse that you're seeing?
0: Well, I, again, you, you, it's it's we're all at home nesting. And so anything to do with things that are delivered to us, uh, whether food or some e-commerce direct consumer commerce companies um, are actually holding up well in this situation. Um, we, we generally see that companies that are enterprise focused business to business, those tend to be often more just long stabbing established contracts often on a subscription or SaaS basis. Those tend to be pretty stable uh, because businesses are still in business so they're still are using those services, particularly for software. Um, And then, you know, what is obviously though, it just depends on there are particular sectors That that I would say more consumer discretionary or you know nice to have versus need to have. Again, as households get a a little uh, more skittish, sometimes we do see a pullback with that.
1: Got it. I mean, we are in a new reality of working from home now. How have companies shifted support? um, Shifted to support that change? Um, You know, uh, you know, how do you do work from home? in uh you know a post uh 19 world
0: yeah and this is something we um it's interesting we have a lot of companies in our portfolio that are distributed companies already so we asked them and we said how do you actually do work from home and we synthesized uh their best practices and that's actually something we share with our portfolio companies but it's you know it's the things you expect there's there's a lot of leaning on video conferencing Uh, these days like we're all doing right now Um, so we're seeing companies they're making sure that everyone has a zoom account um, or or other providers Um, they're making sure everyone has a a conference call number there's obviously a lot of use of slack and Microsoft teams so um, we're generally seeing from our, our companies that the transition to work from home I mean there are some hiccups along the way but these companies are already were embracing technology to begin with and and they already were using these tools they just happen to be changing the physical location about where they're using their tools but by and large we've seen that the transition to work from home for tech companies uh, has been relatively pretty smooth
1: um so uh, i want to remind listeners if you do have a question to ask um, please uh, feel free to submit your questions, uh, type them in. I will, um, you know, take a look at them and I will um, ask our, um, our participants, uh, our panelists here to um, their thoughts on your on your questions. And feel free if you have a question you want to direct at someone specifically, um, go for it. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, Stuart, again, I, I know I'm putting you a bit on the spot here, but I'm curious as to, um, you know, What are you seeing any? I mean, we're already seeing a shift in what people are buying in stores. So what are your thoughts on how this impacts the market long term and people's appetites for certain types of goods? Um, Are business, you know, are there opportunities here for businesses?
0: Well, let let me just shift another answer. What I think is one sort of interesting long term trend that comes out of this is just Mm -hmm. the nature of remote work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is that is always a debate within companies about should we have distributed teams or not? And I think you know, all parties can argue both sides of the argument. The benefits obviously are um, you just I think you can often have a tighter culture. People are in one physical office, more spontaneity, perhaps more innovation. Um, but obviously the benefits of remote, remote work is you can increase your talent pool. Um, and then everyone here in LA knows that, have, particularly with the traffic, sometimes you have to get creative in hiring people who just won't make the commute and they will insist upon remote work. So I, I think it was interesting coming out of all of this. Well, you see companies that perhaps were reluctant to embrace remote work in the past. Now that they're actually doing it, and they've, again, they work through all the hiccups will they be actually more supportive of it? I think that'll be an interesting long-term trend for just labor in the U.S. and perhaps even the world um, as a result of COVID-19. Well,
1: so do we see a more permanent turn? Do you think we'll see a more permanent turn toward work from I, I, home I, or just more flexibility? I,
0: I, I think I think you probably will, again, to wear my, my prediction hat, but it's just the mega trends of just, the technology tools are better than ever to be able to, to do it. And if this happened even, five years ago, I think it would have been a lot harder to do. Like the the technology tools, again, with Slack and Zoom and everything else have caught up, right? So you can actually enable work from home. So the technology trends, is just easier to do than ever before. Um, I I just think that people are less uh, reluctant to move. I've seen data on that, that's a trend. And again, I think traffic only gets worse so people just don't wanna do the commute. So I think you know the intersection of all that, plus now that people have gone through a cycle, they've actually done it. You actually just see more companies that they, they don't have the default that you actually have to work in the office. They might just absolutely have a, a default flexible work policy, including working from home if that's what people want.
1: Um so and, and thank you for that, Stuart. I wanna I wanna go back to my earlier question and I wanna make sure to open it up to both both you and Nick. Um because I think this does play a bit in supply chain. We've seen um, an increase, uh, in, a surge, really, in what people are are interested in buying. Um, you know, uh, a shift toward hand sanitizer, uh, toilet paper, um, you know, household goods, um, hygiene um, materials, and, and and a bunch of other things like this. Um, how how does that demand? I mean, first of all, do you think that demand goes away? Um, and what's the impact on the market long-term? Are there opportunities here for businesses? Um, and uh, why don't we go to Nick on this first, and then we'll come back to you, Stuart.
2: Yeah, so this is that's an interesting question, right? So what we have is that we have mowed the safety stock, the inventory that I think, what I would call safety stock as inventory that is to sit in somebody else's warehouse, right? We have now pulled that, to the store and now from store to your garage or your pantry. So mm-hmm. we have moved the inventory, the safety stock from somebody's warehouse or somebody's store now to your pantry. Now we have abundant of supply. In many cases it's believed that people have stocked up uh, for about two, two and a half, three weeks worth of supply. So what this will do if and when we settle, right, that, mm-hmm. that will replenish the immediate need. And within a week, after they start to run out, is when they will go back to the stores, and what we're seeing now, and we'll continue to see, that they'll be an out-of-stock situation and some of those critical items. Or for those people, especially the elderly group within our society, they're not capable of actually standing in line and in the last couple of days or the week, uh, they don't have enough in stock in their pantries that those are the people that they truly needs items will not have access to those items. So I think it, this, this really, the artificial shortages and the demand spikes disrupts the supply chain on top of everything else is already disrupting the supply chain. So what I think this as a double whammy that man-made created disruption and there was a natural disaster that we were dealing with it to the COVID-19. And we introduced both of them almost at the same time in our supply chain systems.
1: So um, what about your thoughts, Stuart? I mean, just in terms of uh, long-term shifts in the market and also um, whether there are any opportunities here for companies um, looking to address some of this demand?
0: Yeah, I think it's, you know, there's definitely a lot of panic-driven buying going on right now, but I I don't know if you can extrapolate that into long-term shifts. I simply don't know, I remember, Y2K. There's a lot of crazy buying going on then too. If, if those of us who are old enough to remember that, um, you know, there's a lot of sales for bunkers at the time. But that tend, that did it morphs into anything long term. So <laughs>
1: uh,
0: and so, uh, I don't know. Um, I, I just I tend to think that there's just a lot of panic-driven buying, and then it'll normalize over time. And you know, whatever shifts in, in consumer preferences will play out the way that they always play out. But I, I don't okay. know specifically if COVID-19 um just changes behavior any more than here in LA in theory we should have everything for earthquake preparedness but how many people actually do it I think it's just people's behaviors revert to what they're normally used to buying so
1: I mean and I think a lot of people have wondered you know everyone going out and buying bottled water and toilet paper I mean you know what did they have in stock for earthquake season so um that's a good point um yeah
0: but i i, I think nick is spot on though i mean we, we'd already seen this before there's earlier comments about companies that were just were diversifying away from the supply chain solely in china to vietnam and whatnot it's just it's just prudent to do that and again mm-hmm. whether that whether that changes to to people doing insourcing the us and there, there's obviously some policy proposals about do we do, do we make it attractive for companies to do that? Perhaps that happens. You, you, again, again, this is Nick's obviously his his specialty, but I definitely from what we hear from our companies, it, having gone through something like that, it just it just makes sense to be able to diversify your supply chains.
1: So, um, you know, Nick, can you can you talk a a little bit about the you know on that point um, about the supply chain impact on some of the goods? That are now famously out of stock um, hand sanitizer, bread, toilet paper, um, you know, potatoes. Uh, how, how long will stores in major cities be out of these types of things? What can we
2: expect? Well, again, I think uh, to go back to Stuart, it is going to be commodity by commodity. Depends mm-hmm. on your product life cycle, where the raw material comes from, where the raw resources and labor pool comes from, and then how is your first mile middle mile and the last mile transportation network looks like. So this is going to be sort of a very special way. So you look at the tissue paper is a very classic example, right? Uh, Think about, it's not like I can open up a factory in Kansas and say, I'll I'll start to make tissue paper and I can start to supply Mm -hmm. uh, right away to the local demand. Hand sanitizer, on the other hand, I can do that, right? We can deregulate uh, and say, hey, if, if you can, make sure that the protocol for making hand sanitizer for commercial use meets A, B, and C, you're good to go and start to sell that. So so there's two different commodities can be approached in two different ways. So that reintroduction into the marketplace for the consumer demand may work a lot differently than one versus the other. So I think we're gonna have to look at these things on a case by case, the commodity by commodity basis, But if you look at it, if we're saying 14 days, right, a lot of companies have already said end of March, many of the companies are saying end of April. That puts us at about six weeks out, working remotely or in isolation. So what I wanted to contextualize this isolation period is that you think about the bars and restaurants and servers and chefs and the cooks, Uh, if you start to, Add up all of these different variable. Remember 9-11 when we had that? One week we shut down the commercial traffic. Airplanes were down, markets were down, and we felt the impact, but it was still very localized to US. It was very localized to the New York state, to the mm-hmm. Manhattan. Now you imagine this spreading out to European Union, North America, right? Canada just shut their borders. India hasn't even seen the spikes yet, that's 1.3 billion people, and there's a prediction already coming out that that's the next China. So you start to uh, aggregate this data point, and that's what I look at it, is to that we have to be realistic, not pessimistic, but somewhat realistic with the hope of being wrong with that realistic model and see if we come out the other way being very positive. But what it looks like that six weeks to eight weeks We're gonna have to deal with this uncertainty and understand product by product, how this is going to play out.
1: Thank you so much, um, Nick. I really appreciate that. And I mean, for for listeners, I mean, we've seen r- reports uh, right right on these points about you know um, companies pivoting to hand sanitizer in 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 France. Um, the luxury perfume makers Dior and Givenchy, they you know they they recently announced they produce free hand sanitizer for French health authorities. So um, you know I think that uh, that point illustrates um, what you're talking about there, Nick. Um, now we have a question here for um, For Stuart, um, can you give some advice to companies about how much to cut, how quickly? So for a medium-sized company of let's say 300 employees that's venture backed, how deep would you cut costs, in what areas, and how quickly?
0: Yeah, so it's, um, again, it starts with, again, what is your capital position, what is your runway, and setting up the signals or triggers that if you see demand starting to soften, um that you actually will implement those cost cutting measures Um, but generally i I like a a tiered approach where you start with um you know remember like defcon 5 all the way down to defcon 1. so you start with the things like managing your accounts payable you know bills you can pay now but bills you can pay later we really recommend looking hard at your vendor relationships um you know squeeze or eliminate vendors to be honest and vendors if they want the continued use of your services um you know that they need to step up and reduce fees or extend payment terms obviously that creates spillover effects to those vendors but i'm just wearing the, the hat of the actual company itself to preserve its capital um, we encourage companies to renegotiate their debt facilities obviously so that's kind of the the, the first level the second are, are the various across the board uh, tactics such as tightening travel we see that all the time you know coach travel only minimize overnight stays use public transportations of uber and taxis we certainly see companies pulling back on office expenses getting rid of what i call extravagant or excessive gourmet perks uh, employee perks like gourmet coffee fancy office snacks and whatnot we see companies cutting their third-party training costs a lot during situations like this um, and we'll, we'll see companies suspending 401k benefits and other uh, paid benefits. We also see companies really pulling back in sales and marketing. And particular the conference um, events, they'll often look if they can outsource the customer support. And really the marketing spend, we often see brand marketing and PR tend to get pulled back in periods like this. And also just a lot of discipline around customer acquisition, only use those channels that drive higher ROI. So the tactics that I just provided, those tend to be more of the plan B scenarios. And then the plan C is really around headcount compensation. That's where you actually you know, start reducing hours for, for non-core hourly workers, implementing hiring free seats, uh, uh, suspending all the bonus plans for everyone, um, reducing executive compensation, then you also may see layoffs and, and or rolling furloughs. That tends to be more the plan C. But to answer the, the the caller's question, this is it's not wise to be on your heels in this situation like this. It's better to be proactive. Again, when you see the signals coming in, just go ahead and make the changes in order to preserve your capital.
1: Um, so uh, we have another question for you, Stuart. Um, can you help startup CEOs and employees on the call? get a sense for what the venture funding environment is going to be like for the next six to 12 months? If I'm yeah. a seed funded company that needs a series A by the end of 2020s, they're going to be a series A round possibly by the end of the year. Are are companies doing raises? Have they stopped? Yeah, we,
0: yeah, we, well, we definitely, so we definitely see, uh, I mean, Great Crop is very much open for business and we, I mean, we, we, We've had company pitches yesterday and even Sunday, and we're very much open for business. We continue to fund promising startups. that That's our business, right? Um, we certainly see startups that might be accelerating their fundraising in light of this. Maybe they had thought'd doing it at the end of the year, but now pulling it forward, and that's fine. and and, um, and you know we encourage companies again to think about their capital position as a general rule. We stay in an environment of great uncertainty you may want to think about having at least 18 months of capital and and so if the cost cutting measures don't work and and you need to go get more capital, you know, we encourage companies to do that. I can't speak for the entire venture capital industry or all sources of capital for startups. It's not only VCs, it's family offices, it's, it's angel investors. There's a lot of capital out there. I know that Greycroft, we are open for business. I have heard other companies at uh, VC firms though, they are kind of putting things on hold for now. I don't I don't agree with that position at all. Um, but again, it's up to each company to really look at its own capital position. And if they think they need to go out there and raise some uh, funds, I would, I would encourage them to start that sooner rather than later.
1: Well, would you? So, I mean, on that point, Stuart, would you, um, you know, for companies and for founders who are looking to get started right now, you know, like yeah, create a company, I, you know, I would agree. you tell them I, what would you tell them?
0: Yeah, a, a great idea. It's always going to find funding. Um,
1: really? And,
0: and, yeah, it, it does. Look, I think some great, great companies are actually founded and and, and thrived in, in the 2000 and 2008 cycles. Um, so again, you have a great idea go get funding. Um, and you know, we we always encourage that. I, I, we don't encourage entrepreneurs to try to time the cycles. If you have a great idea, you can go get capital, go do it is what we recommend.
1: Um, you know, uh, a lot of the discussions around this, though, um, you know, uh, for, for uh, Y Combinator, Demo Day, et cetera. I mean, people have talked a lot about the idea that what you are offered um, when you're looking for funding, you should be happy and take? Should um, founders be negotiating um, terms right now?
0: Again, every every founder and every round is unique. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I, I will say this in general, if, if public market valuations have gone down, I don't know if anyone's noticed that, uh, but they have. And to the extent that companies are valued on multiples of sales or growth or EBITDA or income, you know, those multiples um, are going to translate through to the private markets too. So it doesn't always happen as quickly, but it does tend to happen. So again, we, we encourage founders to have realistic valuation expectations. Uh, it's not what, what things were four weeks ago, it's what they are now. And and we just say that it, it's always good to be pragmatic. And uh, to answer your question, yeah, I, I always think that it, it's always just good to get funding particularly with investors you think that can add a lot of value it's a long-term relationship and you know i i don't think it's the time really for for people to sort of grind hard on valuation i just think it's really important to stay capitalized and choose right long-term partners for your for your uh sources of capital
1: um stuart you mentioned the the stock market um which um, obviously has had a rough ride as of late. Um, does this mean that people can expect sort of the IPO window to be closed indefinitely at this point, just given what we've seen?
0: Uh, you know, that's, again, that, that's going to be hard to to see how this plays out. It certainly is dried up now. Um, but again, there's, there's just a trend, with there's so much private capital out there that you've seen a trend as companies just taking longer or delaying to even go mm-hmm. public. I mean, right. there are definitely pros and cons of public companies. My last company, um, I was CEO, we had an IPO. It's just it's just definitely different uh, operating as a public company versus a private company. Um, so I, I don't know how that plays out. But look, there are certainly companies that are being formed right now that might be great IPO candidates in seven years or six years. But I it guess it's, it's really hard to predict the timing of that right now.
1: So, I mean... It just in terms of you know um you know we mentioned morale uh, uh, earlier on in this call um how do you balance morale as as uh, some companies a lot of companies are looking at cuts um and and our our efforts to improve office culture and team building are they are they on pause at the moment
0: no i i definitely my advice is you know over communicate over communicate be transparent let you know, let Everyone know what your capital position is. I think companies should just do that in general, not only in a crisis, but just be transparent and say, "Look, this is our reality. Here's where we are. The demand's not coming in. We have to make some changes here, and 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 walk through the changes are and the way that I outlined them before. I, I do believe in that hierarchy of the changes. First, is you, you try to do the things that don't impact the employees, um, or then you do sort of across the board cuts or sales and marketing. And then the last thing is you do on employees, and even that you do it a sort of share the pain type of approach. But I think companies tend to do it that way. Uh, They they tend to have better success. Um, And again, they can maintain the morale as much as morale can be maintained in a situation like this. Uh, But it's also good when when the rebound happens, then people feel like they were taken care of during that situation. I think it can instill a lot of loyalty uh, when companies do it right. There's definitely a price they can pay if they do it wrong also.
1: So um, thank you so much for that, Stuart. Um, You know, I I have a question for everyone. Um, You know, uh, to what degree has um, local, state, and federal efforts to stem the tide of the virus, of this novel virus, um, you know, impacted things for you, uh, companies you're involved with or keeping an eye on, and what more needs to happen in your mind to get everyone through this? Uh, why don't we start with Nick?
0: Yeah, Nick, I need a
1: break.
2: Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so so I think, uh, you know, again, I'm I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on a small to mid-sized company. Mm. If this did not wake you up to reconsider how your global supply chain network looks like, this is truly a time to reflect and say, are you properly diversified? Are you properly aligned in a what-if scenarios to make sure that if this were to drag on for a long period of time, you have a contingencies in place in terms of the finding the alternate sourcing, alternate countries, alternate partners, and what would that look like? And what are your options? Understand the market trend and market capacity and, and think ahead. Use this time, at least for the next two weeks, which is a time where we have a forced isolation and almost nearly shut down Try to have your C-suite meeting and and, and operational strategy meeting and and, and do three-phase plan right away. What are you planning to do and how do you adjust? Short-term and then near-term. I'm not even talking about long-term. So just take a look at it. Do now, uh, short-term and near-term and then use this opportunity to really solidify. But those companies that they'll really survive through this cycle will be much stronger and much more agile in my view for next decades or so
1: I, do yeah. you think there needs to be some government intervention here or or you know
2: support though well, more than I think what, I think I think what we're seeing is a massive infusion of stimulus some I don't prescribe to it <clears throat> I think what we really need right now is a infusion of resources in the public health right I'm working with very large healthcare partner, for example, has terms of what the future demand of need for patients coming into their uh, resource requirement and how they can get ready. So I think there is a balance in terms of the government looking into the public health and public health and making sure that those infrastructures are capable of handling the future demand in the short term. I do agree the government has a huge role to play. I just hope that the role is a balanced role to help not only the big companies and bailing out the big guys, but also looking at the small to mid-sized company and entrepreneurs to make sure that they are capable of surviving to steward worlds with their capital infused to at least make it to the initial shock.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that. My, you know, if I were to wear my government policy hat, I, I would just say, yeah, focus the resources on solving the crisis, obviously, and then. Particularly for small medium businesses, just access to capital, and not that it'll take five months to get it. You know, they 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 need it now. Um, Those would be my two policy recommendations.
1: All right, Um, and um, I think we're we're just about at time now. So, um, uh, Nick, I don't know if you have any final thoughts, and and Stuart as well. um, But if you guys uh, do, uh, feel free to share them. We really appreciate you taking the time to. Um, participate in this call um, for all our listeners.
2: Yeah, no, Go ahead.
1: Nick.
2: No, I was just gonna wrap up quickly. Uh, listen, if you if you're struggling as a small to mid-sized company uh, about your supply chain decisions and inventory management or any of those issues, you know, please reach out. I have created sort of a helpline with a lot of resources in this field and I will try to link up the experts in this area to help you out because I think at the end of the day, we will get through this. We'll get through this as a community, as a society, and we'll, on the other side, when we come out, we'll be a lot stronger and smarter. So good luck, everybody, and thank you for this opportunity.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I would just, and for the the audience, uh, I think we may have a fair amount of startups on the line. Um, What I'm saying is that great companies are often created in challenging times. The reality is it just helps create more focus and alignment and accountability and sense of urgency. Um, I also think it often tends to help create even tighter cultures within companies. When people have been through choppy waters together and they come on the other side, they just tend to be, you know, tight for life. Right. So I've seen that before. Um, As I have said before, when the rebound happens, if you're in good shape for that, you can go out there and clean up. Um, So I think there's you know, there are things here to be optimistic about. Uh, I also encourage companies to act opportunistically you know interest rates are incredibly low right now maybe lock something in and also you see a lot of M&A activity that happens during this period uh, you know companies that that may not have been as amenable to acquisition overtures in the past might now be right now so that can actually help build your company so again it's a lot of uncertainty but I also think there's a lot of opportunity that can come out of this.
1: Um. Thank you so much. Um, uh, We all really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to um, get on this uh, phone call um, and participate in our first of hopefully many uh, such webinars. Um, And with that, uh, have a great day. Stay safe. Uh, Stay home.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Bye bye.